And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we are talking about A Great and Terrible Beauty by Libba Bray, and apparently I'm going to break Harmony's heart. (laughs) She is. I think it's, okay, so I don't actually know if this is true, but I'm sure fans will come at me if it's not. I think it's Libba Bray. I don't know, though. Is it? That's how I've been saying it forever, but that could just be because I read it and thought Libba, and now it's just in my head. I've watched I've watched a lot of people talk like review her books, not these ones specifically, but she, her Diviner series is really popular, and that's how everyone I've seen talk about it pronounces it. They pronounce it Libba. Yeah, here, hold up. My mind has already been blown. I'm a, I'm a Google it now. We're 50 seconds in, and my mind has been blown. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here we go. Hi, I'm Libba Bray. It's Libba, the author of Divine. This makes me so upset, and um, I'm crying inside. Maggie's already made me cry. We're a minute into the episode. Uh, yes, this is a great and terrible beauty, and I was so excited to dip back to my 14-year-old roots and <laughs> delve into this book, and I don't think Maggie was, so I'm going to cry, but you'll get both sides. You'll get both sides this episode. <laughs> I didn't have the nostalgia factor for this book. I know that a lot of people our age read this as like, you know, when Harmony was saying like 13, 14, because I feel like this was really one of the first series that was a foray into like young adult fantasy that got really, really popular. Young adult, as we think about it today, actually hasn't been around for very long. So I think that I just didn't have that, like, same warm, fuzzy feeling reading it that a lot of our listeners might revisiting it, you know? Yeah, and revisiting it, like, I remembered some parts of the storyline, but revisiting it in 2020, you're like, oh, a lot of this is really fucked up, which does take away from some of that basic enjoyment. But the story for me, and I think for a lot of people who were really into these books, the Gemma Doyle trilogy, is important because, like, it's a... It's a coming of age story about woman. And when you're in early high school, you're really kind of facing that in a more direct way than you have before. Like what womanhood is and what society is limiting you to. And these girls are, you know, in the Victorian era, I think. It's like late 1800s. So these girls are in the Victorian era. So they're they're limited by their circumstances in very, very real ways. It's a story that's, it's told in the first person and the language is pretty, like, it's pretty, it's pretty language. Sometimes it's a little much, it's very cheesy, but it's pretty. And it just like really, as a, as a angsty 14 year old who felt like I had a lot of responsibility, because I did compared to most 14 year olds and like big choices to make, it felt empowering to have that same sort of like angst written down for me. Yeah. In this powerful, beautiful 
uh, narrator. I can really see that. That was also the kind of narrative I gravitated towards as well when I was that age. This this trilogy, for whatever reason, just like didn't ever fall into my hands. I think also something that I really noticed during while reading it that I had to like really think about as well is the fact that this trilogy in some ways falls into a lot of like narrative cliches and is somewhat predictable. But this was published in 2003. And so the success of this trilogy probably is what made those things ultimately cliches of the genre, right? Like this was the trendsetter, not not the the thing that came after that followed it, right? So like occasionally something would happen in the narrative and I'd be like, oh my God, we're going this way. And then I have to take and then I have to take a step back and be like, well, the reason that I think that way is because this trilogy sort of did it first, you know? If That's not fair. the very first, but like one of the first, you know? That's that's very fair. You know, I read some young adult books when I was a teenager, but I really didn't have a huge interest for young adult. You know, like I had read the Harry Potter series as a child and I had a few books that I would go and pick up every now and then and like a few series that really held me. For the most part, by the time I was 14, I was reading, you know, the Tom Robbins books and stuff. And I I had graduated to mostly adult fiction. So for me, this was like... These trips weren't really familiar to me at the time because I didn't read anything else even remotely like this. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think that also speaks to, to a certain extent, the ways that our journeys as readers differed a little bit. I had an interesting relationship with young adult where like I, I read a lot of young adult in middle school, mostly like every Twilight knockoff on the face of the planet. I was really into Twilight for a hot sec there, as I think most people were, right? Like I read Harry Potter and then I got really into John Green for a while. And also Suzanne Collins, the Hunger Games trilogy was really like the staple for me. And then for a long time, I was reading almost exclusively adult fiction outside of that. And then I got a little bit older, weirdly enough, like 15, 16. And that was really when I like found more of an introduction into YA. I think because at that time, most protagonists were like 16 years old, and I really was able to find some people that I like identified with. So that was that I had like these two years where I read a ton of YA fiction, so much so now that besides the series I already mentioned, nothing really sticks out to me as being like, this had a major impact on me. Then after that, I sort of grew out of it again really quickly. And and probably since like my junior, senior year of high school, I've been reading almost exclusively adult fiction until recently where I've now sort of wound myself (laughs) back again. I don't read a, I don't read a lot of YA for sure, but like I have found some YA series that I really fucking love as an adult too. So that's fair. I've been reading a lot of uh, YA this year, I think. A lot for me. I mean, I don't read as much as you in general, but there's been YA books that I've been picking up and I'm like, oh, this is enjoyable, especially during quarantine times and 2020. You know, I did the whole Twilight thing again. I'm still on that journey. Yeah. <laughs> Harmony's reliving it. Yeah, 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 for sure. I do think, though, that having said all of this, especially now that I've really rediscovered some YA that I like deeply love and enjoy it really kind of highlighted the ways in which a great and terrible beauty didn't necessarily work for me (laughs) okay okay so let's get into this book let's maybe um give people a summary because we do that sometimes (laughs) so a great and terrible beauty 
in the beginning, it's really, really cheesy. And then for me, got much better. It's about a girl named Gemma Doyle. And she lives in India with her mom and dad and her brother's off studying in England. And she has a grandma that's also in England. And she, it begins like on her 16th birthday and she's fighting with her mom. And then her mom dies and Gemma sees it all through this weird vision-y thing. And her mom like kills herself so that she doesn't get eaten by this dark shadow beast. And then since then, Gemma Doyle is shipped off to England and she has all of these crazy visions. And her mom also gave her this weird amulet necklace. And she goes to this boarding school. There's a bunch of really bitchy girls. And she's just kind of like trying to find her way. And then there's this like hot Indian boy that follows her. And she has secret powers she discovers because the Indian boy kind of tells her, hey, don't use your secret powers. And she finds a diary in the woods because a ghost girl leads her to it. And she discovers that there are girls before her at this boarding school who also have secret powers. And she makes a group of friends and they go into like this secret magical realm and bring the secret powers out into the world. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, basically, basically. Something I will give this series is that I do think the magic system and the way the magic works was pretty unique. I haven't really read a ton like this in the sense that it's kind of to a certain extent a little bit more like traditionally witchy, especially I think with the diary aspects. But then there's also ghosts and there's also visions and there's like also these other realms. And I think that Bray did a really good job of marrying all of those things together to really create something that was unique and interesting to read about, which is generally a complaint I have in YA fantasy is that authors dumb down their magic systems and their world building too much. And I feel like here that wasn't really the case. Yeah, it plays off of a lot of traditional... Well, I mean, there's even... She works a little bit with Kali in the beginning. One of the Indian deities makes an appearance, but isn't really... It's mostly westernized magic, but it's cool because they're in England and things like the realms and there is an instance where there are fairy people, like fae folk. That seems to align pretty well with traditional historical mythology. She just weaves it all together to make something unique and cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it, is that she takes some very traditional elements and she's able to sort of rework it into something that feels like fresh and new while you're reading it. And I read a fuck ton of fantasy. Like, fantasy is really my safe and happy place. So (laughs) for me to say that feels uh, big to me at the very least. Not to say that I'm like the end-all be-all expert, but I do read a lot of fantasy. Yeah, I really like the magic system. I think that's part of what drew me to these books. It was because it was historical fiction. I'm not sure how good the history part is in this historical fiction. I wish... Maggie, do you know? You're giving me a smile. (laughs) It was meh? Okay. I kind of had that sense. There were parts of it that were accurate, (laughs) but like for the most part, this is really... It really does, to a certain extent, feel modern... That's just like set in the late 1800s, but that happens a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I was really into that as a teenager. And then I like that it's witchy. And I loved the boarding school aspect. That's another one of my kinks. So. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, a boarding school, like a magical boarding school. She's beautiful. No matter, no no matter what you do, like. It's just like like one of the most well-beloved tropes in all of fantasy, right? Like it works in young adult, it works in adult, it's it's good all around. 
I think another thing, though, that Bray did really well here is that all of the characters pretty much exist in a very morally gray area. And a lot of them suck. And a lot of them also have moments where they really shine simultaneously. I really enjoyed that aspect. All of the four girls who sort of star in this friendship group felt like very unique characters. They all had really full, well, well-rounded thoughts and feelings, even though the series takes place from Gemma's perspective, at least in this book. She did a really great job of capturing what it just like means to be a person, to be like a woman and to have like this really full and well-rounded identity, which I think is extra impressive because it does take place in full in first person. So Gemma really communicates with and notices things about her friends that bring them to life for the reader. Yeah, I liked that too. I love the moral ambiguity piece, especially for a young adult novel, because I feel like in our teenage years, we're suddenly coming out of this this area where we think that the world is black and white, right? Like there is good and there is evil. And we're realizing that there is in between. We realize that our parents aren't perfect. We realize that our teachers can lie to us and things like that. So having this idea that you are allowed to make mistakes and that doesn't make you less of a human and that we all are kind of shitty people and it's just about our choices was really important to me. Because Harry Potter kind of does that too, to a certain extent, but Harry Potter still has the Voldemort-Harry dichotomy And no matter what, there's always going to be a good and evil. And that is really flipped on its head in this series. I think especially just the the general premise for the friend group is that it subverts the mean girl trope, right? Initially, you get into this boarding school and Gemma's roomed with a girl named Anne, who is there on scholarship and is essentially training to be a governess, while all of the other girls there are of a higher class and are training to be ladies to be married off, which is a problematic aspect that this novel really delves into, but adding Anne's perspective in there and seeing all of the grief that she's given for being of a different class than the rest of the girls at the beginning is, it's difficult to read about. Like, they're mean to her, but as Gemma sort of breaks down barriers with the mean girls, she brings Anne along with her. She's she's essentially like, I won't let you treat Anne like this. Like she is also a person. She's worthy of having friends. And through that, she's really able to like break down this idea of mean girls just kind of being mean all the time. And like, they're able to make a really human connection with each other, which For me as a reader, I don't know if that transition I was super sold on as like a character development arc, but ultimately it worked for me. Okay, so I think I read this differently than you because I don't know about your high school experiences in great, great depth, Maggie. But for me, these friendships were very reminiscent of a lot of my experiences because I was constantly the new girl and I was constantly the weird girl. And to me, very much felt like that friend that you have out of circumstance, but that is really unfortunate. And I always, as a child and teenager, felt like I was Anne to a certain extent and like really desperately wanted to not be Anne. And I think that continues. I don't think that the mean girl tropes in this story are ever actually dealt with, but I think that's realistic. I think that they just form their own clique. And Gemma's able to form a clique that includes Anne, but Anne multiple times in this story does not do the same. Like she probably would not do the same for Gemma, it's implied. She's just as shallow as everybody else. 
but I found that really relatable to how teenage power dynamics work in the real world. Yeah. And I think that it's also important to note that it, because Gemma sort of creates this new friend group, there's almost, depending on whose perspective you're really reading it from, there almost becomes two different groups of mean girls because the people that Felicity and Pippa who are essentially the most popular girls in school used to hang out with, they become antagonists to this new group. And they also do mean things to them. And so it's like this huge back and forth. The The reason I didn't feel like I was totally sold on that character transition was for what you said, is because it doesn't really deal with the mean girl tropes. And Felicity and Pippa never apologize. There's still points later in the novel where like you think that things are relatively harmonious between the four of them and Felicity or Pippa will just say something ridiculously fucked up. It's usually to Anne, occasionally to Gemma. And you got to just take a step back and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. But I do think that you're right in that it's probably realistic. I think the place where I occasionally felt like things weren't realistic about the characterizations in this novel is that... Everyone here is 16, 17, and they did sometimes read a little young to me with like their decision making and things like that. For example, Pippa's whole storyline is the fact that she's being forcibly married off (laughs) before she's ready to, which is like a very real and adult problem. And so you're dealing with real adult problems and just sometimes the way they spoke or acted just felt a little incongruous to me. Really? Okay, so that's interesting to me as well, because for those that don't know, Maggie and I were just discussing this off air, but where Maggie grew up, uh, children were allowed to be in, in higher grades like a year younger. So like Maggie was like in high school at 13, which to me blows my mind. <laughs> so like, I wonder if that's part of it. So if you maybe associate that age, because by the time she was 17, she was in college. Yeah, that's true. Like, I wonder if you associate that age with um, a higher emotional growth. I know that for me, these friendships are more reminiscent of the friendships I had in middle school. I, I felt like that was also like weird though. Like I feel like me breaking out of that dynamic was weird, especially compared to a lot of my peers and having talked to my peers and talking to my peers as adult. I felt like when I talked to them, these things were still going on in high school, it seems. I also had a different high school experience in the sense that I had a really good friend group my freshman and sophomore year of high school, but they graduated when I was a sophomore. So I also had, I think, a much more, for the most part, loner later high school experience. Like I really didn't have that same level of solid friend group when I was 16. I had some really close friends that I was still in school with, but like the main people that I was always hanging out with were gone. And then also adults, right? Because they were in college. So when we so when we hung out together, it wasn't like we were necessarily doing this. So you're right in that my reading of this could just be like really skewed on my personal experience and the fact that like this just wasn't how 16 looked for me by any means. I think that's fair though, because it, it wasn't how 16 really looked for me either, even though I was still in 10th grade at 16. I think also part of their immaturity is informed by their powerlessness. Because I think a lot of these situations happen when you are actively feeling powerless and therefore like trying to grab power. That's why it's such a big thing in middle school, because a lot of us feel super powerless in middle school. And these young girls, they are in a society that does belittle them and treats them like children all of the time. And they have so very little agency. See, I think I disagree with that a little bit in the sense that part of the immaturity that I read was the fact that 
these girls are expected to a certain extent grow up and be a lady so young that they take any opportunity they have to break out of that, right? They go skinny dipping, they steal the whiskey, right? Like they do all of this stuff where it's like for one moment, they can just be their age and they don't have to worry about the fact that Pip is about to be married off against her will. So I think that you're right that they are infantilized to a certain extent, but then simultaneously they're also forced to grow up and deal with adult problems really quickly as well. And I think that some of the immaturity they show while they're together reflects on that desire to just be a kid for a little while longer. So I think that you're right. The places where they act immature in their interpersonal relationships, I think is about a lack of agency and not really being able to like stand up for themselves or communicate effectively because society doesn't really want them to do that. But the places where they're immature just because like they're being goofy and having fun, I think comes from the fact that they're all the time being forced to be like little ladies, you know, like that's the whole reason they're there at this school, right? Is to learn how to be a marriageable adult woman and soon. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's different today because obviously we don't expect children to get married. You know, being married young uh, is usually discouraged. But I do think that when you're going through adolescence, right? I know that I felt this way when I, as soon as I got my period at 11 years old, like I was kind of treated more like a little grown up. And I, I didn't feel like I could play let's pretend anymore or play with dolls or have any of that like childlike innocence because the world was treating me like a grown up and like grown people were treating me like grown ups and sexualizing me for the first time. So I think that one of the reasons why this is a beloved trilogy, uh, uh, yeah, a beloved trilogy has to do with like young girls finding that in this much more extreme to their circumstances, but like this extreme circumstance, that is what a lot of us are dealing with at that time. Yeah, I can see that. It just like, as a reader, it didn't quite work for me, you know, like for whatever reason. (laughs) I don't think you're wrong. I think that you probably are right. I just, it just still didn't like. I know, I'm not arguing that. I'm just, I'm, um, I'm analyzing. (laughs) I get you. I get you. Uh, I just have nothing to add to that analysis, <laughs> I guess. All right. Well, let's take some text analysis then. Let's start talking about race's role in this book. This book uses the word that we talked about in our very first episode of Rebel Girls Book Club. It's used to describe the Romani people, and it uses it quite liberally and often. And there are some weird race dynamics, race-like dynamics with the Romani people. And I wanted to know what your take of that as a modern reader. That that was one of the places where I feel like things were unfortunately kind of historically accurate (laughs) in this novel. The traveling community to this day still faces intense bias and hatred and stereotype. And a lot of those stereotypes were really baked into our, I guess, like cultural zeitgeist in this sort of like Victorian Edwardian era. And there exoticized and fetishized throughout the novel to a certain extent while also being relied upon by the main characters to a certain extent to figure out what the fuck is going on with Gemma's powers because they find out through the diary of Mary Dowd that Mother Elena who is a um, traveling woman that we meet at the very beginning of the novel and and the characters at the time sort of recoil from her in horror to a certain extent is like going to be part of the key to 
uncovering what happened. And then also Felicity, who is a really interesting character for this time period, because she's really into like sexual freedom and the fact that she should be able to do whatever she wants. But one of the only ways we ever see her get to exercise that is through this really weird dynamic that she has with uh, one of the men in the traveling community where it's like, that's really, I think one of the places where like it's fetishized, like the fact that she's attracted to him is because it's like so fucking forbidden. Right. So I think that as a modern reader, you have to really read those aspects of this novel with a critical lens because it does really fall into some negative stereotyping of the traveling community And the novel never really unpacks those stereotypes either because the characters don't, right? Like, they just accept this. And, like, on the one hand, it's historically accurate. But on the other hand, I think this is just a larger question. Like, what responsibility do authors have to, like, break down stereotypes, even if it would be historically inaccurate to do so, especially when you're writing books for younger readers? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. But it does pop into my mind when I think specifically about the representation for the traveling community in this book. Yeah, thank you for articulating that that question, because that was something that was nagging at me as I reread this. Because yes, it is 2003, right? So we are less woke. But we're, we do still have some sort of responsibility. And yes, Libra Bray, Libra Bray is a white author. And she's writing from a white woman's perspective in the novel and she's supposed to be a historical figure but yeah i think that there are ways that she could have unpacked not just the romani people and their depiction but also the exoticism wrapped around the indian people because right from the get-go we see some kind of disrespectful treatment of that too there's a there's a, a a maid or a nanny or something that they have in their household. And there's a description of her that I noticed when I read it. And I was like, oh, that's a little weird and off. And then they have a guy come in with a monkey. And then uh, there's uh, Kartik's... How do I spell his name? Is it Kartik? I think it's Kartik. Yeah, Kartik and his older brother come in the beginning. And like Gemma's immediately freaked out of, about them. So there's some like weird idea about exoticism that's placed on all of the other cultures. And part of me, I think, too, as someone that read this novel when they were young, liked that other cultures were included and that there was like a semi-diverse cast, even though we're dealing with Victorian England boarding school. But It's so problematic. And it's also weird, too, because the sexual fetishization, the fetishization doesn't just happen to Ithal, but it also happens to Kartik, too, because Kartik goes and joins the Romani people who live near their boarding school, because I guess that's where he can blend in. Him as a sex object, especially when Gemma doesn't know him very well, like, it makes sense in some ways, but it also feels weird and objectifying and others, especially because... This book does seem to recognize the fact that, like, if these boys or men were caught with these young women, like, they would be killed. Yeah. They would be in a lot of trouble. Felicity recognizes that and talks about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also, it's very explicitly sexualized, right? Gemma has, like, (laughs) naughty dreams about Kartik, you know? And feels very possessive about him as well, even though she also kind of doesn't like him and has been rebuking his advances the entire time, which 
have not been like sexual necessarily. He hasn't advanced her. Well, but yeah, like he hasn't done any sexual advances. No, no, no. But like he, he, he's. She's been rejecting him in, uh, in other advances though, because he's been trying to just talk to her slash dissuade her from doing this stuff the entire time. So like on the one hand, she feels really like against him, but then on the other hand, he's like forbidden and sexy, and like I only want his attention on me. I do think something as we're talking about sort of this scenario and the larger question of like, what's an author's responsibility. I do think it's worth mentioning that from what I know of the way that, because I, I mean, it's like almost 20 years later now, Libba Bray as an author, I think has really taken that more upon herself. I know that her latest series, the Diviner series has been lauded for like also being a historical novel, but being extremely diverse with own voices reviewer saying that like the representation of race, disability, sexuality has been really positive. So while I think it's hard to answer that question, and I feel like this book doesn't do a great job of actually talking about these topics in a super sensitive way, it seems to me that Bray was is now like really aware of that and has grown a lot as an author, which I feel like at this point is like what we're all looking for and asking for of authors, right? Like we can't get them to go back 17 years and rewrite things that they wrote in 2003, but we can ask and expect them to, to continue dealing with the same topics in a better, more sensitive way as they grow as authors. And I feel like from what I know, Libba Bray really has done that. And it's decided that like, it is her place as an author to talk about these things in a way that's meaningful, even if it isn't necessarily like the most historically accurate thing in the world. And I mean, historically accurate in the sense of the ways that like people in power would look on people of other races and disabilities and, and sexualities, not to say that people of other races, disability, abilities, sexualities, etc. didn't exist in the past. No, I agree. And to be fair, though, I think she could have still included the views of our characters on people of different races or people with disabilities, and still have given it, and I agree with you completely about, we do expect, I'm not holding Liba Bray to the same standard that, or Liba Bray to the same standard that I'd be holding her in 2020. Oh, yeah. And this, this book is still meaningful to me. But like, I do think that there are ways you could have done that, and still kept that historical lens, and still unpacked it just by giving them like more voice and more screen time to like really recognize humanity or like maybe there could have been a conversation between Felicity and Ithal or like, uh, you know, even Gemma and Kartik, maybe about Felicity and Ithal and Kartik could have been like, well, you know, we could die. Like it's, it's really shitty of you guys to keep doing this to us. You're fetishizing us in different language, of course. Yeah. Cause the thing is, is that I feel like on the one hand, it is kind of empowering, especially as a teenager to read about girls who at this time are broaching sexual empowerment. Felicity's whole thing is that her mother has been branded a whore for leaving a marriage that seems to have been really unhappy. And she now lives in Paris with an artist. And it seems kind of unclear if she's getting paid for that service or not. Yeah. they, they She has like a salon. So I think it's kind of implied that she just sleeps with different men i i don't know but like they maybe it might be like a sugar daddy sort of situation because i think women at the time sometimes did yeah but felicity has complicated feelings about her mother because her mother has kind of abandoned her but also admires her mother for like doing what would make her happy in that sense as well and like tries to take on that sexual freedom herself so like that that idea of sexual empowerment isn't something that bothers me in the novel necessarily. It's Mm -hmm. just the fact that for the most part, it's all directed towards 
men of color <laughs> in positions where you're right, they could have been really injured. The only time a white man is ever viewed as a sexual object is Gemma's brother by Anne. And because it's Gemma's brother and all of this is being filtered through Gemma, it's really downplayed and really <laughs> not, not at the same level that it is with Ithal or Kartik, you know? I mean, part of that too, though, I think, and why it's interesting, like why I think it deserves to be talked about is because, well, A, these are like the only men that they have access to, but B, these are also men who don't have power. And these are girls that don't have power too, even though they do have a weird dynamic of power over these men simply by sexualizing them or being sexualized by them, right? Because Mm -hmm. the reaction of society would end up being fatal to these men. But like, I think that's part of why the girls choose to go after them. It's because they probably see their powerlessness as similar to how they are feeling, even though there's weird dynamics within that. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like a recognition of the fact that like we have, we both have fewer options in this world based on how we were born, but also they don't really, they don't ever unpack the fact that they still have power over the men that they're trying to like come Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Like I think they're, are a lot of ways like I don't think Gemma ever like I think that's what I meant too by historical accuracy like Gemma still could have been from colonized India she still could have like had dealings with Romani people and she could still have this you know closeness to Kartik because I think in a lot of ways that does make sense because he's the only person who really knows her secret and they're joined by the fact that they both lost somebody at the same time and have he's there to watch to watch her I think the fact that she feels some sort of closeness or some sort of a strong emotional reaction to that towards him, even though they don't really interact that much, does make sense given the circumstances. I just think that, yeah, if there were like some conversations unpacking the fact that there is still a dynamic, like, yes, you may feel powerless, but (laughs) you're also putting my life in danger. And this happens to people like me all the time. We get killed like talking to you that would have been important yeah or like acknowledged colonization even yeah i think even if there were even if it was just a conversation about the fact that like the norms have now shifted a lot for kartik because in india you know like in india talking to an english woman is more acceptable not totally acceptable right like part of the reason that Gemma is freaking out when she first meets Kartik at the beginning is because she's alone. She doesn't have a chaperone. Like there's this man that she doesn't know, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't help that he's Indian. So like, even if we could have broken down like the, the differences in, in society's reception to him based on like the change in location and talked about colonialism that way, I think that also would have helped. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, the novel gets close to something that could have been really like had some really great conversations, but it does kind of just like present people of different races and just sort of like leave it at that, you know? Yeah. Another thing that they do in terms of weird racial things is two of the story characters. And I'm sure I'm assuming that everyone's read the novel at this point. So like Mary Dowd and Sarah, what's her name? The two old characters that first found this store that are in the diary that Gemma and her friends are reading. And also apparently Gemma's mom end up sacrificing a young Romani girl. And 
it's talked about as being bad, but it also like isn't explicitly said that like the reason they sacrifice this little girl is because she's viewed as less of a person because she's a Romani girl, you know, because she has that less, she has less privilege. And they knew, and they knew they could get away with it. Yeah, exactly. And that would have been really nice to like, cause there is remorse about the sacrifice, but the fact that like they viewed her as less of a person isn't really talked about. Like we can subtextually as readers see that and see that dynamic and I feel like that is pretty clear, but like it needs to be explicitly stated. Yeah, exactly. Because there is like there's a conversation that Gemma has with her mother, right? Because her mother's dead, but she finds her in this realm, et cetera, et cetera. So her mother's a character throughout the novel that she can interact with. Her mother explicitly st- states the fact that like she's lived with this guilt for her entire life, but it's really all about the fact that she killed a young girl and not like all of those other problematic circumstances around it either, which I agree with you should have been addressed and should have been unpacked. Yeah, because part of the reason they're able to get away with it is because she is a Romani child. And had it been a, like, those two girls are thought to be dead. And that's something that's known throughout the school's mythology. But the fact that this little girl, this Romani girl went missing isn't talked about at all. And I don't, like, again, because this is a historical novel, I don't need, like, us to necessarily social justice it but I need like it to at least be explicitly stated and like recognized for the reader that like this is what happened that these power dynamics were at play yeah absolutely yeah and the reason uh, (laughs) no 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 you're just you're right like I, I I'm totally with you there and I think it's also important to state the fact that like explicitly that this murder of the young child is one of the key sort of like twisty points in the novel where like that's when Gemma really starts to figure out that Mary Dowd is her mom and that Mm -hmm. she's been lied to her whole life etc etc so like she's also like the the murder of this young child young Romani girl is also like up it's downplayed and it's also just like a plot point you know like it's it's almost just shocking for the sake of being shocking to a certain extent they don't get super explicit with how she died but they do get explicit enough where it's like oh my god like we, we just murdered a kid in this novel you know yeah i mean and it's talked about beforehand so like we get to see that it affected her mother and her mother is grieving from it but like yeah it would have been nice to give her more and i don't remember I don't remember if that happens in the next two books. So we'll see. (laughs) We'll all go on this journey together fresh. Um, I think also it's important to point out the fact too, though, that Mary and Sarah had the trust of the Romani people as well. Mother Elena had genuine affection for them um, to the point that when the, like later Gemma and Felicity go back to see uh mother elena mother elena is clearly suffering with like alzheimer's or dementia or something and she thinks that Gemma is mary and like they have a very fond conversation in that way so like it's very very just like colonialistic inhumane it's like really fucking terrible the betrayal that they that they do unto this community for the sake of getting more power explicitly And it's just not talked about. Like, it's the Romani people obviously view them as humans. So why isn't that being returned? Yeah. Like, you have this friend and you're going to go ahead and kill her fucking daughter? Yeah. And I think also something that's 
underplayed in the novel and a place where the novel I think does to a certain extent fall into some good and evil tropes is the fact that Sarah turns into Cersei who is the like main villain of the novel the entire time who's trying to steal Gemma blah 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 corrupt her this whole time but because of this a lot of blame sort of uh, after the fact is sort of given to Sarah and Mary never really has to like deal with the consequences of any of this uh, besides her own like grief and guilt about it because yeah. she's like being essentially she's almost viewed as being swayed by this evil character because we know that she goes on to be evil right like she gets the power that she wants and terrible things happen and Mary just kind of gets swept up in her wake okay so I think that's a good transition to talk about something else that I noticed throughout this novel that I'm like feeling trepidatious about because I don't know if it is ever fixed throughout the other two. Ooh, interesting. I feel as though the desire for power and like the idea of powerful woman is almost a little bit demonized within this book, which I know sounds contradictory because we're dealing with a very powerful character. Like our hero is powerful, but ambition is looked at very poorly and I think that's why Sarah is seen as the evil one because Mary wasn't the one that like was seeking this power and I think that we can kind of see Felicity as like a Sarah prototype as like who Sarah probably used to be and I wanted to know what your thoughts were on that oh I totally agree with you like the entire thing is that like you get to just like exist within the power that's given to you right like that's essentially Mary's lesson to Gemma is like, you're not ready, you're not ready, just sort of be happy with what you have right now, we'll train you up, like, you'll get there eventually, right? But like, don't desire it now, don't covet it now. And the desire for more, even just more answers about any of it is viewed as like this really negative thing. And like the one, the one character that does go on to have power, and mourns the potential loss of her agency, essentially, at the beginning, due to her power it like turns into the fucking evil witch. Right. And like, we see Felicity almost fall down this same path. And like, that was something I appreciated about Felicity's character, I think, because like, she really was a morally gray character. And that was like enjoyable to read about. But Mm -hmm. I do definitely think that there's still within this magic system, a level of power, which is acceptable, which keeps you in the realm of the good. And then there's a level of power, which takes you into the evil. And like to credit the magic system, right. As far as we know, that is true. Like there are evil things that live in the winter land and throughout the rest of the realms that can corrupt you. But I feel like that's a failing of the magic system almost in general is that there's no way to get more power without it being like a negative thing almost. I mean, the idea is that, I guess, you you had teachers to help guide you through that power, right? So you weren't, like, doing it all on your own. Like, that's what was supposed to happen for Sarah. But Sarah, I she wanted too much. So then she, the magic abandoned her. And I don't think that if this was a story about young boys or, like, masculine... Well, yeah, no, just, like, young cis boys. Um, I don't think this would bother me as much. But for some reason, because it's about young women... And I think, too, because I do remember some aspects of the original trilogy that keep haunting me as I read this. Like, I do think that that feels ultimately disempowering. The idea that, like, ambitious women 
are wrong I, um, and vicious in this way, at least. I think it's because it parallels their real lives so much, right? Where like in their real lives, if they want more than what's being given to them, whether it's because of class or just because of the fact that like they're expected to get married young and do all of this shit, if they want more than that, they're suddenly immoral women. They're viewed, they're viewed like Felicity's mom to a certain extent, right? Which is a more empowered life to live to a certain extent, but also difficult societally, right? Like she's a pariah in England. I think that that's the place where it's hard when these kind of tropes are assigned to young women, because it feels like there's no place really where they can truly just like get and live in power and agency. It has to be so carefully modulated or else the bad things will happen, you know? Whereas I think that sometimes when you read, when you read situations like this for young men, there is no parallel to their real lives, right? Like, unless it's a story that's really explicitly about class in, like, the 1800s, which I suppose you you could, like, draw parallels to. But I think it just doesn't feel as, like, encasing and suffocating in the same way as it does with women, where it's, like, there's a ceiling to hit every time where somebody's going to try and stop you from doing this or face the consequences, you know? Yes, exactly. Kind of along that point, I have a text example that I think really showcases this i have a few actually but this is the one that i'm going to use they're talking about pippa and her forced marriage essentially lucky pip cicely says she could marry a suitable chap and not even have to go through a season having every man his mother size her up for marriage i don't think pip would agree with you felicity says i don't think that's what she wants at all Well, it's not as if we can do what we want, is it? Elizabeth says simply. And so that was striking to me because Elizabeth and Cicely are kind of seen as like the boring sheep girls. That's something that Gemma repeatedly calls them. Like they're the girls that are just going along with the rules. And like even they recognize that lack of power and agency. And to me, it read as melancholy as a like, well, we're recognizing it because this is all we're given. Like, what else are we going to do? So I think that this book does challenge that a little bit. And maybe that's with the great hierarchy. But the fact that we have like Sarah as the main villain, I think complicates it because she's the only one aside from Felicity that we see like really want that power. And then also like, The fact that Sarah calls herself Cersei, what do you think about that? Because I think that kind of relates a little bit to this, like, woman wanting power evilness. All right. Well, before I answer that question, I do want to rebut something that you said. Because I agreed with you about the point about Pippa and, like, those conversations that that were being had about, like, this forced marriage and the fact that, like, that's not what Pippa wants, et cetera, et cetera. Except for the fact that the only way she gets out of this marriage ultimately is the fact that she fucking dies. And for me, that we've talked about this in previous episodes, right? Talking about the fact that like suicide essentially or like death for women is the only escape and how in a lot of cases in Victorian era, that was like, that was empowerment almost. Um, And it really bugged me that this novel fell into that. (laughs) Like it really, I I, like it felt disempowering for me that that was the way Pippa's story ended. So I just wanted to throw that out there that like, I think that it could have done so much more along the line of that topic if Pippa hadn't died. Yeah, no, I wasn't talking about empowerment for Pippa specifically. I just mean like the fact that 
Gemma does choose to go and go against her mother's wishes and does choose to take the power, even though Kartik is telling her no. And the fact that the novel does seem to recognize that powerlessness could then be an empowering narrative. But no, I agree with you. What they did to Pippa was wrong because that is that is a trope that happens that like the only way to get out of a shitty situation is to die. And I feel like that is a disempowering narrative, even if in some cases, like if you leave me, it could be a kind of realistic one. I think for me, just I think for me, it just felt so bad that like the fact that the novel recognized that powerlessness in earlier conversations, like it almost negated that fact. <laughs> like I was really fucking pissed when Pippa died. And I didn't even leave, I didn't even like Pippa that much as a character, right? Like she is very shallow and she doesn't have that. I, I think that of all four of the girls, she has sort of the least developed inner life that we see, partially because Gemma doesn't like Pippa very much. And she's open about that the entire time. But yeah, I did just want to like throw that out there. Uh, what was your what was your question again? Right. Um, I don't remember. Oh, the fact I don't that remember. Went by Cersei. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought that was an interesting choice. Uh Especially just because, like, this novel, I mean, on the one hand, it just kind of brings in, to a certain extent, like, a different Western sort of, like, mythological uh, background, because obviously Cersei is Greek. But now Cersei is, like, so much in the public sphere because of Madeline Miller's novel. Yeah. That, like, we, I feel like we see her differently in the public sphere today, but also that original myth of her turning the men into pigs, I think, works well as like this powerful yet evil lady trope yeah 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 it's hard for me because i haven't i really don't know much about the original myth and really my only exposure to cersei is through the novel by madeline miller which i really enjoyed but i do think that it's interesting as a moniker just because it's like it also is is a name that's associated with isolation right like cersei is trapped on this island by herself because she has power. And I wonder if that's the way that Sarah ends up feeling to a certain extent. Like she loses all her human connections when she takes this power. I don't know if that's like, oh, that's interesting. I don't know if that's like reaching too much, but that is, that is really one thing that I associate strongly with Cersei. And I feel like does connect to a little bit to the conversation we had about the fact that Sarah's demonized for taking this power. Like she gets the power and then loses pretty much everything else you know but she calls herself Cersei before she has the power too so like she's taking on this name and just to give listeners uh and Maggie like a brief uh a brief 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 summary of the original myth Cersei doesn't really appear that much in Greek mythology she's in the uh I think it's the Odyssey Mm -hmm. with uh Odysseus Odysseus he comes onto her island and she turns all of his men into pigs and that's like, that's the big thing. She's just known as a powerful sorceress who turns men into pigs. But like Medusa, there is some power in there and kind of a cult following that probably existed even before Madeline Miller's novel because of the idea of like a woman having that sort of power. But she was painted as evil because of that. And she like did beg Odysseus, I think, to sleep with her. I think that's, I think that's canon. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, is it in the original myth, the reason that Cersei gets sent to the island? Is that part of the original myth that Helios, I think it is that, I don't know if it's part of the Odyssey, but 
There's a few. She appears a few times. I know that that's her most famous like appearance, though. Her most famous thing is that she just changes men into pigs. pigs. Like that's she's a yeah. She could have been in some in some circumstances. I know this from uh, let's talk about myths, baby. Shout out to them. Everyone should listen. I know that in some circumstances she is depicted as a goddess, like a minor deity, because and she might be she might be like the sister of like Hecate or like the daughter of Hecate or something. Okay. She is known mythologically in some instances as like the goddess of witchcraft, which also could be there. But a lot of that I think has to do with like names and we don't have full rounded stories around her. We have a few other stories in which she's mentioned, which are kind of like alternate universes than the odyssey (laughs) interesting Interesting. okay i just thought it was interesting that she chose this uh this mythological figure who yes in some in some ways was known kind of as the goddess of witchcraft but is more famously known as just being a famous witch who is evil because she turns men into pigs but there's also like medusa that empowering aspect because men are also evil (laughs) so she just she has the power to fight back yeah yeah, I do think that's really interesting. It, it makes you, uh, I think, curious about Sarah's motivations because the only the only perspective we see on any of this is Mary's because we read her diary. Uh, and I am curious, Harmony knows the answer to this question, but it does make me curious to see if we ever get more of Sarah's backstory in the next two novels and like learn more about- I don't remember. Oh, okay. I mean, we kind of do, but I, I don't remember. Like, I don't know if it like will answer what you're. Oh well, no, no, no. I just, I just, I'm, I'm curious now more about like what her perspective is on all of this, and like what her desire, what the root of her desire for power was. Because part of the reason that Sarah is villainized is also because Mary specifically villainizes her. The rest of the order specifically villainizes her. So like, we are seeing a very biased perspective, coupled with the fact that like she's. She's sending very scary shit after Gemma, you know? Yeah. I mean, and she's cool with killing people. Yeah. That's another thing. Yeah. No remorse there. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Kartik, aside from him just being a sex object. Because in the beginning, he's, like, kind of a real asshole. Mm-hmm. He manhandles Gemma. And I wanted to know how you felt about that. Because for me, I think, especially because she, like, like, taking, if we're not even, like, looking at the race, just, like, in a boy-girl perspective, that was uncomfortable to read about because she does end up having feelings for him. Yeah, I was really pissed that there was, like, a romantic aspect there. I knew it was going there. I knew the whole time because he's, he's he's one of two boys in the novel. But, like, it, it, it really made me uncomfortable the entire time. I think especially because the manhandling scene is really uncomfortable, but, like, also... Kartik is asking Gemma, de- demanding of Gemma, ordering Gemma the entire time to not use this innate power inside of her. And I get that it's mm-hmm. because he's scared of what's going to happen when the realms reopen and that there's like this magical aspect. But essentially, their entire relationship is a man attempting to order a woman not to use the power that's inside her. So like... And threatening her and manhandling her. Yeah. I didn't like Kartik very much as a character, I think because of all of that. Like, I recognize the fact that Gemma's feelings about him and, like, the way that race is portrayed in the novel is, like, not great. But just, like, as a character, I was like, I'm not into you. (laughs) And I think part of it is because we really don't ever get his perspective on what exactly it is he's afraid of or, like, 
what he's been told. He gives very non-answers to Gemma when she tries to ask him questions. And it's just kind of, I, I just, I really felt for Emma when she essentially makes the point of like, well, fuck you. Why would I, why would I believe you? You're not telling me anything. Like you're not giving me any reason to trust you. And my mom's in the realms. Yeah. So like, of course I'm going to go there, you know? And I think that generally speaking, their entire relationship is uncomfortable because it's just like this weird power struggle where she has power because she's white and he has power because he's a man. and they're just kind of like walking this real strange line where <laughs> she puts him in danger, but he's an ass the entire time. Who's just trying to like hold her back. It feels like for no real reason. And yeah, I didn't like him or that dynamic. Uh, and that's the reason I didn't like the romance. <laughs> so I, without remembering that much about what happens, actually remember that I do really love Kartik, but I don't like him in this book. I've discovered. Yeah. I, so that's my one spoily for you. I, I love Kartik. I don't know why. Maybe it's because he's hot. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, man. I am curious to see how it's going to develop in the next two books, right? Because, like, he is being painted as the main love interest. But, like, I agree with you that it makes sense that Gemma has some sort of strong emotional reaction to Kartik. But there really, for me as a reader, wasn't enough screen time between the two of them having positive interactions for me to really yeah. like get behind the eventual romantic feelings that she has for him. Like the sexual ones I get, right? Apparently he's hot. <laughs> right? Like, well, I think that's where they start from. I don't know that there are romantic feelings yet. I think she just like needs a sexual outlet. Yeah, which is problematic for all of the reasons that we've already discussed. <laughs> but like it really, as soon as that scene happens where she has that dream about him, I literally texted Harmony and I was like, this book went a direction I knew it was going to go and I'm mad that it went there. <laughs> Like, I did not want it. So I am curious to see how my uh, thoughts on him will shift and change. Because I will also say that I think something that's unfortunately uncommon also in YA fantasy is that, like, especially in a series, the main love interest tends to start out as a dick. And you, like, slowly, slowly see more of him and, like, get more of his perspective over time. And then you fall in love with him. Is this because of Jane Austen? Did Jane Austen, like, start this? Can we blame her? I have no idea. She was like, everyone's just recreating Darcy. I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I don't like Jane Austen, and I especially don't like Pride and Prejudice, so. But you've read it, and you know that Darcy starts off as a dick, right? Like, yeah. that's the that's the thing. Yeah, Darcy starts off as a dick and just insults Elizabeth, but then turns out to have money and just be awkward. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if we can blame her, <laughs> or if this is older than her, but... I just, I've just noticed that specifically in fantasy for whatever reason. I, I mean, especially historical fantasy, which the historical part makes sense. Yeah. I just, I've just noticed that that's like a real trope that persists. And I think that in more recent fantasy, like uh, The Infernal Devices by Cassandra Clare comes to mind. It turns out to be more of like this misunderstood bad boy trope. But like, it really does start out with this idea that like, the main character's a dick, but then you're gonna see why he's broken and you're gonna love him anyways. And you know what? I fall for it every fucking time. My my little feminist brain sits there and they go, Maggie, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I fall for it every time anyways. I get that. I get that too, because like, I also have feelings, you know, and like can be romanced by these things. But it is, it's fucked up that we continually keep writing these things because then we are telling girls that it's okay uh, if a guy's addicted to you. Yeah. And uh, authors, let's like maybe stop doing that. Like, let's make it, let's make an effort to just like write good characters, like good romantic interests. Like in the Golden Compass, the dude in the Golden Compass. I love him. He's a good guy. 
what's his name? The guy that I'm thinking of? I don't remember off the top. <laughs> I haven't read those books in a while. I, just, I love them. Well, the love interest in the Golden Compass, I think, is a positive male love interest. And let's give young girls and women, let's give women too, because this exists for a lot of romance books. Let's give them like more positive love interests where they're treated healthily because I think that's good. Yeah, I've actually read a lot of more romance this year than I ever had in my entire life. And I I definitely think that in the past like five years, there's really been a, a shift in the way that romance is written in both young adult and adult spaces to like really be focusing on the fact that like, even if you do want to do the bad boy trope, like making him a dick ain't it. Yeah. Now I'm just thinking how much I love Will Harrendale though. Like I mentioned the Infernal Devices and now I just, I love Will Harrendale. I read those books for the first time earlier this year in like many, many years. And I still, I'm soft. I'm soft. I don't know what the Infernal, oh wait, is the Infernal Devices the the one that started off as like Ginny Draco fanfic? Oh. No, that's no, no, no. It, well, it isn't. It isn't. So, like, it it's based off the Shadowhunter series, but it's like a separate series, and it's a retelling of a te- uh, tale of two cities. But it's the same lady. It's the same lady. Those books, my God, those books were my version of a great and terrible beauty growing up. The mortal devices are, yeah, the uh, mortal instruments and the infernal devices. Oh, holy shit, man! I read those books like nobody's business. <laughs> Okay, I think we're almost done for this book. The other big thing, I wanted to read a quote that I have apparently on my Facebook wall, and I have attributed it to a much different book that's not a young adult book. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I must have, like, thought that it was this book, because I think that, like, the, the book that I attributed it to has a lot of similar quotes. So it's about choice. And Gemma is talking to her favorite teacher, Miss Moore, who is like her mentor in life. And they're talking about choice. And Gemma asks, What happens if your choice is misguided? I ask softly. Miss Moore takes a pear from the bowl and offers us the grapes to devour. You must try to correct it. But what if it's too late? What if you can't? There's a sad sympathy in Miss Moore's cat-like eyes as she regards my painting again. She paints the thinnest sliver of shadow along the bottom of the apple, bringing it fully to life. Then you must find a way to live with it. 14-year-old, 15-year-old Harmony loves that quote. And uh, really, it really resonated to me, resonated with me about like the the choices that I was making at the time because I was making some big life-altering choices for me and other people. (laughs) Um, What did you think about that, Maggie? What do you think about the theme of choice throughout this novel? Uh, That quote also really stuck out to me. Uh, I think especially as foreshadowing for like what we end up finding out about Mary and the fact that Mary is Gemma's mom and all of that, right? Like it's very heavy foreshadowing. I do think, though, that the idea of choice in this novel is played with a lot because it really emphasizes the fact that, like, these girls have the individual power to make their own choices, but that in a lot of circumstances, those choices still can't affect their circumstances in a lot of ways. So, like, I, it, it makes me think of when Pippa tries so hard to break off her engagement, right? Pippa's whole thing is that she has epilepsy, which at this time would make a woman unmarriageable. 
And so when she's engaged to this man who is much older than her and rather rude and just like not a good match for her, she goes to him and she tells him like, I have epilepsy. Like we don't, you don't want to do this, you know? And she plays him really hard. And then he goes back to her parents and they play it off. Like she's just nervous about getting engaged essentially. So the, it's like it, it continues to go through. So like in the one hand, uh, Pippa made a choice there, right? And a choice that was brave because she's been told her whole life that like having epilepsy is something she should be deeply ashamed of. Her mother says that she should be able to control it, all of that. So she makes a choice to out herself essentially in this way as somebody who has this condition in order to try and make better choices for herself in the future. And still the consequences of that are negative for her, not in the sense that she's ostracized, but in the sense that her choice didn't mean anything, right? Like she still is forced to be engaged to this man. So like choice is portrayed, I think, in a really complicated way in this novel in that sense, because the part of that this quote leaves out, I think, is the fact that sometimes you can make a choice and still you don't have enough agency for that choice to mean anything, uh, which is something that they... Pippa especially, I think, butts up against while we're reading this. But I think also the idea of responsibility and guilt are are really sort of hammered home through that quote and also throughout the novel in the sense that when you're dealing with real power, like Jenna, like Gemma has the ability to, you are going to make choices that don't have a clear cut answer of what's right and what's wrong. And you have to just hope that you're making the right answer. And if you don't, you have to do what you can to either fix it and atone for that, or you have to find a way to live with yourself. Like that's just the reality of what it means to be an adult to a certain extent where like your choices are attributed to you specifically in a way that it, that isn't always true when you're a kid. And also what it means when you're, when you're dealing with power that can have real circumstances, like real change, you know, real consequences as well. So I think that's something I appreciated about this book was that it deal it talks about choice and agency in that way in so many different circumstances uh, and challenges what it means to have choice. I think especially as a 16, 17 year old woman in the society that doesn't respect or value women's choices or opinions, you know? I agree. I think it's interesting too, because when you brought up the example of Pippa, Pippa did make that choice and it was really brave, but it seems Like, Pippa doesn't really have a choice because her family is relying so much on this marriage for her to, like, get their family out of their gambling debts. But, like, it is kind of applied. Like, it's a forced marriage in quotation marks. Like, she could explicitly tell Mr. Bumble no. Is that his name? Mr. Bumble? (laughs) Sorry. She could explicitly tell Mr. Bumble no. And instead, she does it in a very, like, coquettish way so that she can, like, keep her reputation and And marry somebody else. Yeah. And like, well, yeah. And also like, so that her family doesn't disown her. I think that's the big threat there. But I think part of Pippa's death. Well, because her virtue will be, her virtue will be called into question if he breaks off the engagement. So she has to do it. No, but she, but she does it in a way without just explicitly saying, no, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. But like when she does choose to stay in the realms, it is kind of hiddenly presented like the coward's way out because she says to Gemma explicitly, yeah. I'm not as brave as you. If we're going and taking that that example and putting it with this quote, like she's choosing not to live with it. She's made the choice that she doesn't want to have any more choice. She doesn't want to deal with it. Like her circumstances suck 
And she doesn't want to deal with those shitty circumstances. Yeah. I don't know. I think all of this is to say that like the novel really talks about choice and what it means to have agency in a very nuanced way. Yeah. Which I think is like I said before, like why it appealed to so many people because growing up, I didn't know anyone who read these books. Like none of my friends did. Um, But since we've had this podcast, I know two people at least who have like asked me to read these books on this podcast. (laughs) Hopefully we'll have one of them on during the third book. Um, uh, all right. Is there anything else you want to talk about for this episode, Matt? I don't think so. I feel like we've hit mostly all of it. I'm interested to see where the story goes. As much as this book didn't like, wasn't super my thing. It ended with such a bang and such a cliffhanger that like, I am curious to see what's going to happen next. And I feel like we're really going to, I feel like we've blown the doors wide open to something that maybe does follow less traditional YA tropes um, moving forward. So I'm excited to see. Uh, I'm excited to see. And I can also see why it is such a cult classic, right? Like I think if I had been exposed to this when I was like 13, 14, I would have been fucking all about it you know it's got all the kinks all the kinks that we want in our literature or YA literature there was also supposed to be a movie and then warner brothers killed it because they're evil so listeners i want you to rally for another goddamn movie because as i read this all i could think that's your homework tonight (laughs) listeners no social justice homework this time i just want a great and terrible beauty movie i want you to rally again because i know you have in the past i really think that we can make this happen is this a feminist book, Maggie? <laughs> I mean, yes, but one that's problematic in other ways, I think. Because it does center around four women who are literally coming into their power and like struggling against what society is prescribed for them as being the correct path. It's told explicitly from a young woman's point of view. And it does have some really like open conversations about things like sexual empowerment, about what it means to be a woman who wants power, about what it means to be a woman who's trapped by circumstance. But I think that because of the problematic aspects of some of those conversations, the problematic aspects of race and the way that colonialization and the traveling community are handled in this novel, it's sort of white feministy, I guess, right? Like it, it doesn't, it's not, it's not a very mm-hmm. inclusively feminist novel. And I don't know if that does get better in the next two books or not. I'll, we'll wait and see. But if I was to recommend like a feminist YA novel to a 13 or 14 year old now, I don't know that this would be my first pick. Or if it was, I would definitely give all of those disclaimers first and be like, hey, just so you know, like this is a really great novel in some ways. And I think that you might really see yourself in it. But while you're reading it, maybe like pay attention to the way that that race is is talked about, you know? Yeah, I love that you talked about the disclaimer thing, because like, one of the reasons I keep all my books is so that someday I can find young people <laughs> to like share these books and stories with and like help convince them that these are important stories. And I do like I love these books. These have such an important nostalgic meaning for me. And even reading them now at 25, they still have important meaning for me. But I think that, yeah, I'm not sure I would recommend this to a young person today. And if I did, I'd be like, let's have a conversation about these things. And I think I agree with you. It's definitely white feministy. And I also think that, surprise, surprise, white feminism is often shitty feminism because it fails to understand all of the real nuances around gender and power dynamics. And I worry that this is going to end up being even kind of problematic for white women in in a way because of the weird idea about like ambition being bad. Yeah, for sure. I do think, though, that, like, 
it is also important to acknowledge the fact that like books like A Great and Terrible Beauty walked through that series like the diviners could later run, you know? Yeah. I think that there's also value in this and that 20 years ago, there was less like explicitly feminist literature out there for young adults and young women. So even though this is not perfect and still problematic in some ways, it is important foundational work that has now allowed more of these themes to be explored with more nuance and depth now, you know? Yeah, and I'm not sure if it would be necessarily considered radical for 2003, because in 2003, I was like eight. So I don't really remember that much. But I do think it it was an important read for me to read even at the time that I read it, because we talk about these things regularly, but still like even the fact that there's like an interracial, that there are interracial relationships within this, that is kind of big for a lot of white people today and like I talk to my other white friends and we we have pretty open discussions about this and like we we talk a lot about things like having to unpack the fact that like it is okay to date people of different races so there were some things that were a part of this that were definitely like pushing the mold and are important for readers in some ways even though they're problematic like we do have a character with epilepsy stuff like that. Like there is representation. It's just not good representation, not handled the best or well at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think in some ways this book was a little bit radical in YA in 2003. Like I'm I'm thinking back to other things that I read at that time. Like even some of the stuff that doesn't stick out to me, I remember it was specifically because it either dealt with young boys, which like I liked some of those books, or really fell into the idea that like, the love interest is going to save you or like at least really help you along in your journey to become your own hero. And I do think that there is something radical about the fact that like, it really is just these four girls figuring it out. The love interest in this novel is barely there. He's low key kind of an antagonist to Gemma getting her power. (laughs) Like it really is just her relying on herself and her female friends. And I, I do think that for YA literature at this time, like that was kind of, radical to at least get published you know like so much of it from what I remember is like very dependent on the love interest either helping you out or just like saving you damsel in distress style I wonder too because you were talking about and you seem to have a better grasp of like the history of YA but I wonder too if female sexuality was depicted quite as explicitly in books geared at this audience uh i don't think so because there's also a huge controversy happening now essentially about how much sex is appropriate in ya and when ya becomes new adult usually based on sex but sometimes also on violence man this is another really hella problematic book series like way more problematic than even this one but like i think about sarah j mass and the fact that a lot of people have a lot of issues with the fact that her series are categorized for the most part as young adult even though they are some of the most explicitly sexual books I've ever read in my entire life. And so like, there is a lot of tension still happening, I think, in the YA versus new adult community about what is appropriate to like build to teenagers, you know, like young adults. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. an evolving conversation all the time, (laughs) you know? Okay, well, that's interesting. Um, what are what is our homework for this? Uh, you mean besides trying to make the Great and Terrible Beauty movie? <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's homework for our listeners. Listeners, that's your job. I see. Report back. I see. 
well. This episode's coming out for the holiday season, so I, so I think that this is more generally speaking just like about the fact that it's December now. But I think that I really want to make sure that when I'm that like when as I'm participating in this like holiday season that I'm making sure that I'm prioritizing supporting local businesses, black owned businesses and all of that good stuff as I am making my way through my holiday shopping. There is something, even though I haven't read this book, there is something really nostalgic about it and very December-y about it, just in that way that like young adult fantasy fills that hole in my heart. So like, I'm really feeling that a little bit right now, I think, as I'm thinking about my homework. Sorry, it's not terribly related to the book, but... No, I think that's a good idea. I think for me, it's going to be having more... I don't know where I'm going to be spending December, but I think that if I'm hanging out with family members or people who I know are a little bit behind on some of the places where we like need to be as a nation to move forward to have more conversations about the problematic ways that they're living their lives in a generous in a generous way that's going to not like turn them off completely. That's my homework. What are you reading? What are we reading next? Oh, what am I reading? What am I reading? I'm reading Midnight Sun because we're recording this back in September. And <laughs> I'm reading The Ghost Bride again for our Halloween episode. And people who listen to us every single week are going to be like, why does The Ghost Bride just so keep coming back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we heard about The Ghost Bride in like our October episode. And now it's like The Ghost Bride yeah. has passed when we're talking about it. Yeah. Maggie, what are you reading? I'm almost finished with The City We Became by N.K. Jemison, and I'm also reading All of Creation by Ruth Ozeki, and I'm also reading King of the Wild by Nicholas James. No, Nicholas Eames. Good, good. The N.K. Jemison book. I need to check her out. I feel like I'm infamous in all social circles about the fact that I really didn't get along with the fifth season, but I will say I've really, I've read her, her first series and really enjoyed that and I'm really loving this so I am curious if like the fifth season just wasn't for me specifically or like if I circled back to it if I would like it more this time because it's her most famous work like she broke records winning the Hugo Award for it three years in a row like it's very highly acclaimed and beloved so I can't tell if I'm just wrong or like or what I don't know I don't know because I've never read it (laughs) Next week, we're reading A Sweet Far Thing. No, what's it called? Actually, you know what? I have it somewhere. I have it right here. Let me. Oh, it's called Rebel Angels. Is that the second book? Which is the second. Yeah, that's the second book in the Gemma Doyle trilogy. That is what we're reading next week. Rebel Angels. We're just going to power through this whole young adult world. We got a lot of young adult for you guys this season. It's true. We do much more than usual, but that's fine. Well, you know, it brings in the numbers. So we're completely commercialized at this point, I guess. Oh, yeah. Talking about a series from 2003 is really <laughs> bringing the rating. I, I think it will, too, well. but it is just funny. Two people have asked me to do this series. It is funny. So. It is popular. And Libba Bray is still like a very popular author. If we really wanted to bring in the numbers, we would have talked about the diviners. So, hey. I don't even know what that is, so I have no interest. <laughs> All right. Talk to you guys next week. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button.
Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebel girls book club on Facebook at rebel girls book one on Twitter and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.